Hi, my name is Jeremy Hicks. I work with the U.S. Institute to End Human Trafficking. The Institute, as it's known by, is dedicated to end human trafficking in the United States. Our approach is to educate the American people and our legislators, disrupt sex trade activities, partner with other organizations in this fight, and consolidate our efforts to maximum effect. This podcast is about speaking to each of those elements. By having meaningful conversations with others involved, survivors can give us true eyewitness accounts as to what's actually happening in the shadows. And we can discuss and promote actions that are working to decrease and stop human trafficking. Our hope with this podcast is that you are going to be learning about how you can help build a community, a community that unites together to be against human trafficking making it harder for the industry to exist. This fight won't be fought overnight, and it won't be ended overnight. But if we focus on ending human trafficking today, we can see a trafficking-free generation in the future. Here's today's episode. Our podcast today shares a story of a survivor. Her name is Ori. Ori is an abolitionist to end human trafficking. She's been sharing her story to groups wanting to help the fight of human trafficking. and She has a deep passion for human trafficking prevention, which is why she helps educate professionals, teachers, parents, and teens to understand signs of someone being trafficked or groomed. Ori currently lives in Texas, but grew up in Los Angeles. She also serves on the board of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking. Ori sat down with us and shared her full story. It's lengthy, but it is important. The details of her past, how it led her to be trafficked, and how she was able to move on with her life. These are all aspects we need to understand. Let me start with this. If you think of human trafficking as this dark, evil thing that happens, like someone being kidnapped by an unmarked van, someone being locked up in the basement, or something that happens overseas... That's not the case. Of course it happens, but not frequently. It's like saying the only murders that happen are serial killer cases. Those are the extreme, not the normal. Throughout our podcast, you'll hear stories, cases, and data that help paint the true picture of how human trafficking occurs in the United States. And if you think that it isn't, tell me how it's estimated to be a $150 billion industry. As you listen to Ori's story, pay attention to the chain of events and how they played out. Mistakes she made on her own, the mistakes made by those around her, and you might even be able to relate to her, even if you didn't experience the same things that she did. But we know that for some of you listening, you did experience something similar. Our goal is to listen and to understand and to remember these things so that we know how to be a better person a better leader, and a better parent in our community. This is Ori. So growing up, honestly, like, I was very sheltered. You know, I grew up um, at First AME Baptist Church. I used to sit in the front row with my grandmother with my white dress on. I couldn't even eat a peppermint. (laughs) And my mother was an usher, and my grandmother um, was a deaconess and would help out. And so I grew up in a really strong foundation of faith, honestly. We went to revivals on Wednesdays, but I didn't know it was revivals. I thought it was 
going to the church, singing in the choir, playing the piano, and then playing with the kids afterwards while the adults are having revival in there. And so I had an okay childhood in my mind. Because my mother was a single mom, she worked three jobs in order to, to take care of me. She worked three jobs to take care of me. You know, I had no idea that we were poor. I had no idea we lived in a gang-infested community or that our school system was very horrible. Um, I had no idea that we lived in low-income housing, Section 8, the projects. I had no idea about that. I genuinely thought we had a roof over our head. I lived in an apartment. I did not know that the size of our apartment was 464 square feet, and six of us lived in that. So, like, my mind as a child at even four and five years old, like, the most earliest memories I can think about was, like, just family. We had a lot of family in the house. We all shared one bed. Like, we lived in this apartment, in this place, and so... Um, I didn't really know that like we were poor. Like, my mom did the best that she could with what she had. Um, my mother took care of everybody else's kids growing up. So I had no idea that she took care of my cousins because my aunt was on drugs. Like I didn't know that my uncles was in prison. So that's why she helped taking care of other people's kids. And so I grew up very sheltered, like very, very sheltered. We didn't talk about what happened when the street lights go off. We didn't talk about the guys hanging out at the corner selling drugs. We didn't talk about the boys that would be on their bikes and riding by and saying certain things or why the graffiti was on the wall. So here I was growing up as a kid in low-income community, in the projects, in Section 8 housing. Our rent was free, right? I wouldn't even know these things. It was free because my mother would collect the rent and help clean up. I had no idea we were poor. I want to pause here because I want to make sure we're not sharing a myth as a truth. Those who have been trafficked will tell you that it's not about being poor. It's about being vulnerable. While money, shelter, or special things might lure someone into being groomed, that's not the only thing. Plenty of times it's love, acceptance of others. Many have shared that they were trafficked while in the modeling industry because they were afraid that if you didn't give in, they wouldn't be able to continue in a career that they wanted. But the reason Ori shares this information is because she wants to set up the scene, the scene of why or how things happened to her throughout her life. Her mom was a single mother helping raise her brother's children. She had to depend on others in the community, even if they were not the most trustworthy. Lack of choices for parents raising children can often cause harm to those children. I don't think it was because Ori's mother was a neglectful mother, I think she was someone trying her best, but made some poor decisions. Decisions that eventually led to some dark moments for Ori when she was growing up. I didn't know this until 25 when I started processing why I was scared of the dark or why I always like keep like sleep with the closets closed and things like that. I always thought it was just because I was scared of monsters or something. I had no idea that when I did an EMDR session, um, the first time I was ever sexually abused was at five years old. Um, a neighbor that lived in the same apartment complex was a younger mom and she would make me and her son go into the closet and do certain things. And so while doing EMDR, um, I started processing, which is a, a therapeutic um, process um, with light and sound and movement. And so it made me have, it brought me back to the memory of where it all started. Um, I couldn't have probably remembered that until I got a safe place in my life where I felt safe enough, quiet enough, where my life was quiet, there was no more chaos. Um, and then that memory came up. And so my earliest memory of sexual abuse is five. My mother wanted a better education. There was an opportunity for me to then switch schools 
to a better community, um, I, got, I started being bullied really badly because I didn't have what the other kids had. I didn't look like the other kids. And that was a huge part. That's a big part of my trauma, the identity piece. Not knowing who I am, not knowing if I fit in, wanting to belong, wanting to have friends, you know? My mother was very nurturing. My mother took care of me. She made sure that I had everything that I needed, but there was a lack of communication. And so as a kid growing up, my mother, although she did the necessities, the mechanical stuff of taking care of me, I was not being affirmed as a kid. You are brave, you are beautiful, you are strong, you, you know, that God loves you. Like, I wasn't affirmed in that stuff. I heard about God, I heard about those things, but I wasn't being affirmed in who I was and who I could be and who God called me to be. Like, I, I didn't hear that kind of stuff. So when I was getting bullied at school, instead of my mother being like, what happened? Like, tell me what happened, it would be, did you go tell the teacher? I had nobody as a young child from the very beginning what I realized even with the bullying nobody was protecting me and that is the number one problem nobody was watching and nobody protected me nobody cared about how it was making me feel and how it was affecting me like I was getting my hair cut my head shoved into toilets like and I thought something was wrong with me you know you start thinking and believing that something is wrong with you that people don't like you like what is wrong with me and so already feeling that you know, at seven, eight years old, and then you're trying to do everything. The first time I ever tried to buy love, I can remember I was like seven, eight, would give up my food, you know, so I wouldn't get bullied or that somebody would like me. Like I started really early just trying to buy love and would not know that then people would use money to buy me, you know? And so it started really, really early for me. And so instead of, you know, a coach that I had or someone, a teacher doing some type of intervention, or empowerment in my life. So very young, I started building these like, the number one risk factors, like a vulnerability of like, not knowing who I was or if I belonged, trying to figure out where did I fit in, willing to do whatever I could just to be loved. Ori ended up moving away from that school. It wasn't necessarily because of the bullying. Her mother just needed her to go back to her previous school, where Ori did feel more comfortable. She fit in better with those kids. So fast forward just a little bit. Ori is now nine years old. When I say I was sheltered, my mother didn't talk about having boyfriends. She would say they were family friends. And she had this guy that she was dating, which she was very private about, right? Um, but I remember us going in this gate and and so he told me to open the gate. I was playing down like on a stairwell. And so he was like, oh, I'm looking for your mom, sweetie. And then I was like, oh, she's upstairs. And, and so he, I let him in, of course, because I've seen him before. This is a family friend. And um, as he hugged me, he began to like, you know, go inside my dress, inside like my panties and stuff and rubbing on me and stuff. And, and somehow sub, like subconsciously it's, it was, already be to, it was already becoming normal because of what happened at five. Like I didn't, I can, I can remember like, it was that flight or freeze thing into where literally I just, I just froze. I mean, at eight, I'm trying to process like what was actually happening here. Like what was, is this wrong? Is it okay? And so at nine years old, uh, my mother used to have me in this daycare center. So my mom was actually a preschool teacher. 
How ironic. Like, my mom worked at preschools at the recreational park centers in Los Angeles. And so she would put me in an after-school camp. While she worked on the preschool side, I would go to this camp. That would do, like, art, play outside, and things like that. I will honestly say I started getting that boy kind of, not boy crazy, but thinking boys were cute, liking boys, not really understanding what was happening with my body and development and things like that. Um, definitely puberty started early for me. Still, again, no conversation. I was in the fifth grade, I remember, and my mom literally did not sign the permission slips to, for me to learn about sex ed. Like, that's how sheltered I was. And so, but living in these communities, that would eventually expose me. And so at nine years old, I was at this camp and I ended up playing sports and stuff with older girls, of course, that again too. Um, playing on a baseball team, playing on a basketball team, and was just exposed to a lot in that neighborhood, in that community in Los Angeles, California. And so I ended up um, walking off to like the fruit trucks that we would have out there. It was like these trucks that would sell all type of like candy, chips and fruits and stuff. And so I ended up going into this building where these boys were. I thought one of the boys were cute, you know. And you walk into this room, and I walked into this laundry room with him. And he was like, come on, come on, let's go in the laundry room. And so I walked into this laundry room, and you think that you're just going to kiss. Like, oh, my gosh, or he's just going to like me. And so I ended up being sexually assaulted in the laundry room. He ended up um, raping me and was just waiting, waiting. I felt shameful. I felt like it was my fault in that moment. And so I didn't want to go back up to the park. I, I, it was the first time, honestly, I just remember, first time I thought about running away. Because I had done, I thought I did something wrong. But staff had been looking for me. And so I remember walking this walk of shame, like walking up to the park. And that was the first time it just got really bad. Um, instead of people asking me, was I okay? People asked me what was wrong with me and that I was bad. I was bad, that I was making poor decisions. Nobody had asked me what had happened. It wasn't any of those questions. And so a lot of times I even know that now with the kids that I work with, like that's the number one thing is that we immediately point the finger at them and don't even ask them, you know, what has happened to them or like, you know, are they okay? And so that day um, my mother was so, I think, frustrated. So I had a mentor that worked at the camp and so she told me that I could go to her house. And so I went to her house that night and just, I guess, for my mom to cool off or whatever. And I remember being in the bathroom. I wasn't bleeding or anything, but this is how unseen I was. I felt I was. She had like makeup on the counter or something. I remember taking blush and I took something like lipstick and like rubbed it on like my body just so somebody would ask me, am I okay? And she asked me what had happened. I told her because she asked me What's wrong? What, what, what is this on you? I told her. And then she called my mom, and then my mom took me to Children's Hospital. And I remember my mom being like, if you lying about this, it's all going to come back to you. The boy who cried wolf, all this stuff, was done in the dark comes to light. And it was like I felt at nine years old, nobody believed me because people thought I was boy crazy or something, you know? I was fast. I thought I was grown. All those words that a lot of times in, in the community and culture that I come from, we use those words really strongly. I go, that little girl is just fast. Like, she just boy crazy versus like what had already started happening. And there they did a rape kit. They did, they found semen. Um, the boy was charged. He went to juvenile hall. The next thing I do remember is that the, the woman that was my camp person had a boyfriend. And so my mom would allow me to go over to her house and stay there. Um, they were in their 20s. 
And I remember I was about like 10 years old. I had to be 10 or 11 at this time. And she told me to go with him to Wingstop. Like we were gonna go pick up the food and stuff. And it was the first time I gave a man oral sex that was like 20 years old. He grabbed my hair and shoved his self in. Like made me give him oral sex. And that didn't even come up until years later when I was driving by that Wingstop. And I had a trauma, trauma reminder. Like, why am I feeling like this? What is this place? And then I remember being in the back of that parking lot. I think that just psychologically, my brain has been protecting me. So until I got to a safe pace in my life where my life was stable and very constant, um, and my life was very quiet where it's not a lot of chaos anymore, like after having my daughter, oh yeah, like memories start coming up. Like now it's time for you to process this. And so when I drove past this wing stop, I remember being like, <laughs> like just couldn't understand why I was feeling this eerie feeling, this nasty, nasty feeling. And then the memory came of being in that back parking lot and us literally walking in, getting the wing stop. Before we walked in there, this man made me, this 20-something-year-old man made this 10 or 11-year-old give him oral sex. Again, Ori is nine years old right now. Between the ages of five and nine, she had been molested three times and raped once. I, I, I cannot fathom the trauma that this girl has gone through. Regardless of what type of neighborhood she came from, these occurrences are by family friends, people that her mother trusted. And as you heard Ori talk about, she hardly remembered these occurrences until she was in her 20s. She literally blocked it out of her memory. We often hear this when victims of sexual abuse speak out. We question, well, why didn't you bring it up when it happened? Why are you now talking about it? I know that Ori is not alone in this. Just like she would keep things to herself when she was bullied, why would this be any different? While I was growing up, I used to get comments from the kids in the community, why your mom's so old? Why is she so black and you're so white? Right? What kids do? Because a lot of the other moms were younger. I, didn't, I guess I didn't have the same complexion as my mom. And so I didn't think about that. The Christmas of, I was 10 or 11, I cannot remember um, the exact age, but on Christmas Eve, I was asked, was I adopted by my cousin? I wanna help provide some clarity here. Ori was adopted when she was two days old, but her family never told her. She never realized she was adopted. She just thought her mother was a single mom raising her and her father was not around. She never felt like it was really something to question. So when her cousin asked her one Christmas Eve if she was adopted, that was the first time that Ori actually started to wonder. My mom picked me up that night and I remember it was just really quiet that night. And I got home, I didn't say anything, woke up Christmas morning, didn't wake up and open my gifts. And my mom came in my room and was like, baby, why, why are you not opening your gifts? Why are you didn't wake me up this morning? And I looked at her and I was like, mom, am I adopted? and then tears start falling from, her, falling from her face. This part of Ori's story hits hard when you think about it this way. Obviously, the sexual abuse is awful. It's extremely just awful. But when I think about 10-year-old Ori, I think about when I was 10 years old. 
I can see how that type of news would hit hard in that moment. She had one security, her family. And now she finds out that she's not related to her family like everyone else. That's, that's tough to hear as a 10-year-old. And my aunt came in there in the room. I don't know why you crying. This family love you. Rango, I don't know why you doing all that and crying and stuff. Like, you took your time out to adopt her. She's in, it was like, this aunt who was my safe person, the person who protected me, it was like a switch happened. Like, and it was like, she fast. She out here running around with these little boys. You got these social workers all up in our business. She probably got guns and drugs in this house. You seen her journals, the stuff that she writing, she's tagging on this stuff. Like, it was all negativity. Not comfort, comforting this child that just found out that I don't know who I am, where I come from, what runs through my blood, blood, my blood, what my mother looks like. Everything's a lie. Everything is a lie. And then you sign a paper of the court, this whole family made a decision to protect me, to love me, and you're not even doing that. Ori had mentioned earlier in our conversation that the one person that seemed to stick up for her, her safe person in her life that was the only one who stood up for her in the past when she was bullied was her aunt. So when her aunt started to say these things, it's as if any safety that Ori had, which was already unstable, just crashed to the ground. Nobody came to comfort me. It was like once again, at 10 or 11 years old, it was my fault. I needed to suck it up. I needed to stop crying. Like, this family love you, girl. I don't know why you crying. We'll be right back after this break. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a passion to end human trafficking. But even though you're passionate about it, you're not sure where to begin. Well, we can help you with that. The reality is that human trafficking, and specifically sex trafficking, can only thrive if there's a demand. The demand of buyers purchasing sex or watching pornography that traffickers and pimps produce. After a survey, four out of five buyers shared that they would not purchase sex if they knew that there was a much better chance of being caught or exposed. So how do we help scare buyers away? It takes education. Education around the community to understand how grooming of sex trafficking occurs, learning how men, women, boys, and girls are being purchased, and what signs to look out for to possibly stop this crime from happening. If the entire community, such as individuals, businesses, schools, and churches, were to become better educated around how sex trafficking and sex buying occurs, we could greatly hurt the industry of sex trafficking. The U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking has a program to help you learn and be aware of how this is occurring in the community. It's called the Trafficking Free Zone. The Trafficking Free Zone is a certification that you receive by watching our free online course that educates you about modern day trafficking and how you can help stop it. You can access this program on our website, USIAHT. Dot org slash trafficking free zone. Encourage your business, church, school, community, or maybe just some friends and family to take this free online course and become a certified trafficking free zone member today. Go 
to usiaht.org slash traffickingfreezone. Again, that's usiaht.org slash traffickingfreezone. Even though in that moment on Christmas Day, I told her like, mommy, I love you. It felt deceitful, you know, it, and then my brain started really processing. I remember like, so is that why you kept telling me the guy's names were different with my dad? So it's the lying, it's the lying. The same very things you're teaching me not to do, you were doing it. Yeah, you thought she was protecting me, but I'm 11 years old trying to figure out, you know, I'm creating family trees and I can't even create a real family tree because it's the lies. I get it, I get it, you wanted to protect me, but that's why I'm big on certain things with foster parents, man. You cannot lie to these kids, like you have to tell them the truth, you know? You can't be afraid for you. You were afraid as my mother. You thought I wouldn't love you no more. You thought, like the very things you probably was afraid of was the very things that already was gonna happen. And so after I found out I was adopted, it was like, I started really testing the waters. My mom be like, baby, don't go around the corner. Don't go up the street. Psh, I was going up the street. I was going around the corner, I was doing, don't come in the house before the street lights come, go off. Oh, I was coming home 30 minutes later. Like, I'm at, I'm at my friend's house. Like, I'm going to be right there. I'm just in the building. Like, it was like just testing, the testing, the testing. And so, you know, even my report cards, my grades were always fine. Or he's talking too much in class. You know, she's doing this. She's being defiant in these ways. And so it was the behaviors that nobody was catching. Um, I got to middle school. You know, and now I'm like, I'm not gonna lie, like how we used to be that kid that got bullied. Now I'm like, you know, I've learned by being bullied. I never became the bullier. I was more of the person that didn't want other people getting bullied. So I was like standing up to bullies in middle school and saying, like that first week, like I was what we call pressing in an urban dictionary. Like I was now, I learned to use my voice, that my bark could be louder than my bite. And so I would use my voice to be loud and to like, be more extra um, in order to scare people off or you know act a certain way act like this tough girl so people wouldn't try to pick on me or that people that felt unsafe could gravitate toward me and that's what happened and so even as I was 11 I was still going up to my mother's job and stuff and I was playing sports more too so I thought I was a gang member honestly I remember writing on my backpack like this gang stuff I wasn't even from nowhere like but thinking you know Thinking I'm hard because I know all these gang members, but guess what? My mom got to work from 6 a.m. to now 6 p.m. So while she's at the work, I'm hanging out with the girls, even though she's thinking it's just team, girls from my team. They're all gang members, like, you know? So it was, it was happening really fast. Ended up hanging out with this crowd and I ended up, um, assaulting a girl with a skateboard. Um, we were leaving school. I ended up causing commotion. Well, our group caused commotion and I ended up getting a fight with this girl. And I just remember like, I became the bullier that day. And I assaulted this girl with a skateboard. And I thought I was cool, right? Like I thought I was cool. I just got in this fight and everybody like, ooh, Oreo, right? I get up to my mom's job, hanging out with the kids, telling them what I did. I get back up to school the next day, police is there and put me in handcuffs and arrest me for assault and battery. And I'm still thinking I'm cool, right? Like all the kids walking by like, Ori and Sequoia in handcuffs. And I'm like, I don't care, right? Till like I drove down to that, that juvenile hall 
never forget East Lake Central Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles. And a part of me still felt cool. And so sitting in the office, they unhandcuffed us and basically we were placed on probation. And I was expelled from any school district in the state of California. So I could not step foot on any type of regular school. I had to then go to um, what we call community day schools or alternative schools where most kids were on probation or got kicked out of the district for behavioral issues and stuff. And so at 11 years old, I never stood foot. The last time I was ever really in a classroom, honestly, I'll say the fifth grade. Ori was in a situation again where she wanted to feel connected. She didn't want to be bullied and be the odd girl out. She wanted to have an identity among her peers now that she didn't have an identity in her own family. She felt like the only people who would accept her were people who usually got into trouble. After all, she was constantly told that she was trouble. She was constantly reminded about the negative acts in her life, never the positive. I was on probation at 11. And if I violated those terms, you're going to jail. There will be a warrant placed out for you and you're going to jail. I had, pro I had community service. And so because my mom's hours, I then had to now catch the bus. There was no way she could do it. So I still had to catch the public transportation all the way back to now this library where I would do my community service at. I started doing this community work, like I would sign in, put the books on the shelves, and it was going okay. Until I met the kids one day, the lady told me I could take a break. So I was on the computer, and lo and behold, right next to me was this pretty girl, long hair, green eyes, like, you know, had everything I didn't have, the Jordans, had the crop tops, right? Like, and I was like, whoa, right? But normal sometimes kids do. Self-esteem, she's the good girl. And she's like, hey, what's your name? Oh, and then from there. So then I start checking in late. Then I start cutting my hours down, building this friendship with her because she was cool. Like, I thought she was cool. My mom was talking on the phone, and this guy that had molested me, um, like, came to the house. And even though she didn't let him in or anything like that, the guy that had first molested me when I was a kid was like, why is he here? And I was, like I said, I was already in that pre-teen stage, like, where I was like, F this. Like, if nobody gonna keep me safe, I'm gonna keep myself safe. And so my mother answered the door. She didn't let him in. And I remember I literally that night, I you know, got mad, packed up my bag and was like, Psh, I'm out of here. Like, and this was the first time I physically fully ran away. Like I would like try to run away, like going up the street or staying at a friend's house and my mom would always find me that way. But like, this was the first time I like packed my bag. I called my friend and she was like, yeah, come to my house. The girl I met at the library. I walked probably about like, 15 blocks now it's a short ride in a car but like I literally probably took me an hour to get to her house and just when I think about that kid how fearless I was at 11 like just not scared of nothing like walking in the middle of the night on a track too like this is a known track in Los Angeles that I was like walking down you know people would try to you know guys would of course but I wasn't scared like that's how numb I became honestly like how numb I was to chaos in a really bad environment I was not scared honestly walking I was like all right just tell me what streets to what I need to go and I'm gonna I'm find you 
And I walked all the way to her house that night. And her mother and father, they, you know, she lived in a white picket fence home in the middle of the hood that was like beautiful, big house, had her own room, had all these shoes and clothes. Her mother was a nurse, so she worked overnight. And so her grandmother would watch her. Grandma would be asleep in the back house. We ended up like, she was like, change your clothes, change your clothes, because I literally had on like still my school uniform, because it wasn't that late. Now that I think about it, it had to be like probably like eight o'clock or something. And so she gave me like some clothes to change into. And then we were gonna go and hang out with these guys. And so when we hang out with the guys, she knew that, you know, her mom would come back in the morning, so I couldn't stay there with her. Normally I've told this story, I'm like, oh yeah. I, um, she took me to this guy house. No, really, she took me around these guys. And because she didn't want to get in trouble, you know, I couldn't stay the night there, like all night or whatever. She left me with these, these dudes. And so the one particular dude was like, I got a place to stay for you. And he took me to the trafficker's house. We'll hear more from Ori's story next week. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you can be properly educated about the truth of modern sex trafficking, how we can fight as a society to prevent it, and how we can provide proper care to those involved in exploitation. This is Jeremy Hicks with the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking. Thanks for listening to A Trafficking-Free America.